As you, um, as you know, I'm um, not feeling great, but that's uh, temporal, and I'm not alone in it, I'm sure. And I wanted to just say thank you to whichever one of you uh, shared it with me, <laughs> because last Sunday I felt really good. Shook a lot of hands, and, um, and then people told me, oh, I've been sick all week. So thank you for your gift, and I'll do my best to try to pass it on as well. The gift that keeps giving, right? Actually, it's really interesting because I had uh, desired to, to preach and survey the book of Revelation with you this Sunday. I told you that that's what I was intending to do, and indeed that's what I was intending to do. And in God's good providence, uh, we're not going to do that. And we're not going to do that for two reasons. The first of which is we don't have enough time to do that uh, because we uh, baptized uh, so many individuals this morning. And uh, that in and of itself is a delight to my heart because uh, in direct response to the preaching of just a few weeks ago on baptism, a number of individuals uh, have sense the movement of the Spirit of God in their lives and their need to be obedient to the Word of God and to be baptized. And, beloved, that is, a, that is the mark of a church that is alive in which the Spirit of God, in response to His Word, um, works in people's hearts and changes them. And so we have much to be thankful for and to rejoice in the baptisms of these individuals this morning. It's also in God's good providence because, honestly, I don't feel very good. And I don't really think I have the strength to preach a lengthy message through the book of Revelation. So God knows all these things and has planned all these things. And so Revelation will just have to wait uh, for another time. Instead, what I want to do is I just want to speak to you, and we'll see how it goes here. But I want to speak to you about, at the end of the year, this is New Year's Eve, I want to speak to you about living in a world without consequences. Living in a world without consequences. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 12, Psalms 12 and verse 8, that the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. In other words, when when vile behavior becomes the norm, when it becomes celebrated, then the wicked have no restraint, and they parade their wickedness in forth in, in society. Ecclesiastes, in chapter 8 and verse 11, there Solomon writes, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, when there is a delay in the consequences, then the restraint of evil is not felt, and it manifests itself in greater and greater ways. And that, my friends, is the world in which you and I live. We find ourselves here at the end of 2017, 
looking ahead into 2018, and we live in a world in which evil is rampant and growing. It could be very, very discouraging to look around. In fact, as was read for us earlier from Psalm 73, that the psalmist himself, this is not just a phenomena in our day. This is a phenomena that the righteous struggle with and have struggled with for millennia. And the psalmist himself looked around at evil in his society and how it was, um, it seemed as though the wicked were always coming out on top. And he was most discouraged by it all. And in fact, it almost uh, shipwrecked his faith, he says. Until Psalm 73 and verse 11, until he stepped into the house of the Lord. And then he was recalibrated. And he began to understand reality as it really is. And so in just the time we have this morning, that's kind of what I want to do. I want to invite you and I into the house of the Lord through the word of God that we can be recalibrated here at the end of the year and heading into a new year so that our faith stands firm, stands strong, that the discouragements that come to us when we see evil prevailing and we see the cheater getting ahead, that we are not uh, either um, tempted to cut corners ourselves in order to try to keep up, or just uh, withdraw in discouragement. The year 2017 has been a most interesting year. (coughs) Pardon me. The problems have continued to escalate in our society and around the world. There is a growing financial disparity between the rich and the rest of the world. In the year 2017, the 500 richest people in the world gained over $1 trillion in net worth, about 26%. Whereas the rest of the world, for the most part, suffered a diminished standard of living. This is the result of a bubble financial system that is worldwide. We are living under the, under the delusion that one can borrow his way to prosperity. And as the governments of this world continue to create currency units in profligate ways, handing them over to their cronies, the rich get richer and the rest of the world suffers. This is fraud and it is wicked. Beyond that, 2017 has revealed corruption in the highest levels of our government. The FBI once considered a bastion of of, uh, integrity has been compromised at the highest levels by individuals who have put personal political gain above their commitments to fidelity and honesty. And this is a travesty, because when it reaches this level, that means all the levels underneath it are also affected with the corrosive corruption 
that we find. 2017 has been the year of the beginning of the revelations of unspeakable sexual perversion across our nation. Those in media, those in, in Hollywood, those in business, men in positions of authority and power have used their positions to <clears throat> take advantage of others in some of the most horrible and unspeakable ways. And I'm afraid that this is only the tip of the iceberg of what may well be revealed. 2017 has revealed to us that our news organizations, many of whom are hopelessly corrupted, and that we can no longer trust what we read or hear. Fake news <coughs> has become the mantra and is now used by the left and the right to bash one another. And it's hard to know what's true anymore. This is a world in which we live, and it's a direct result of the lack of the fear of God. It could be most discouraging. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. As Peter is writing to his readers who were also living in a time of great discouragement. And he writes to them to, to remind them of a, of a truth that is so important for us to make sure that we have a firm grip on as we go into this new year. And the truth that Peter wants to remind them of is that God does not balance the books at the end of every day. But there is a judgment day coming. There is a day that will come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when he will set things right, when he will, when he will disclose the thoughts and intentions of the heart, he will judge with a righteous and true judgment, he will punish the wicked, and he will reward the righteous. And it doesn't look, it didn't look in Peter's day, and it doesn't look in our day like that my day might come, but Peter wants us to hang on. He wants us to hang on to that truth and to remember it. <coughs> I want to look with you at verses 3 through 13, kind of a lengthy section. And to do it, I'm going to break it down for you. There's just three statements I'm going to lift out. We're not going to take the time to try to exposit every detail here. There's a lot here. This is worthy of more than one sermon, to be sure. But we'll go through it and pick out the, the big ideas. But there are three statements about the return of Christ that we find here in this passage that we'll, if we get a hold of them, will strengthen our hearts as we move into the new year, into 2018. Let me read the text for you. Know this, first of all, that in the latter days, mockers will come with their, own, with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Three statements for us this morning. The first of which is found in verses 3 and 4, and it's simply this. His return is mocked. His return is mocked. Peter's audience here are struggling with false teachers. You can see that back in chapter 2, verse 1. But as false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. In particular, there were those within the church who had assumed to the role of teachers who were denying the, the return of Jesus Christ. These were the false doctrines that they were introducing into the church. And Peter needed to write and to warn the believers about these things. <clears throat> By application for us today, my concern this morning is not with the false teachers within the church, but is with the principle, the principle here of the cynicism and self-indulgence that characterizes those who deny the return of Christ. Look here in verse 3, it says that in the last days the mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. In other words, they not merely mock the, the delayed return of Christ, but they mock the very idea of the return of Christ. For those that Peter was writing to, they were doing it with their words by application as we look around us, it is those who arrange their lives in an outward mockery of the return of Jesus Christ. They consider it as to be a non-event, and it holds no fear for them. 
And so they were given over to their own lusts, driven by their own passions. No moral compass, no moral boundaries. They are what one might call spiritual flatliners. They are like those in a hospital bed, connected up to a heart machine, measuring pulse, that when the heart ceases beating, the line goes flat. This is how we find ourselves today, surrounded by individuals who are morally flatlined. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This, my friends, is the world in which we live. Notice in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They are materialists. They deny the supernatural. Today, we would call them evolutionists. Those that would postulate that all that we see is the product of random chance and accidental chemical reactions. They have removed God entirely from the equation, and by doing so, they have removed themselves from the moral accountability to God. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, what we see today is what has always been, and what has always been is what will always be. I love to watch nature shows. I find the Planet Earth series, the cinematography, to be absolutely stunning. I like the Blue Planet. I like the latest one, which I can't remember the name of it, but I like that one too. <laughs> My problem is, is I don't like the narration. I'm driven crazy at times by the confident assertions of that kindly-sounding English grandfather who will glibly assert that these particular events are millions, if not tens of millions, and sometimes hundreds of millions of years old, who will talk about species of animals deciding to do something as if they held a convention <laughs> and determined it would be a good idea to change our beak design. It would make us more efficient gatherers of food. It's absurd. It's nonsense. But it is the prevailing opinion of our universities, of our school systems, indeed of the population at large. And the danger is not just the foolish science of it all. It is the moral unhinging that accompanies it. Again, if we have no creator, then we have no accountability. No one to whom we must give an account. No one who has a right to establish moral law. 
no one who will someday right the wrongs. This is the world in which we live. I can't help but think that a nation that will kill its own children for profit has lost all moral restraint. And this is the world in which we find ourselves mocking the return of Christ, not so much overtly with their mouths, but with their behaviors, with their thought processes, and with their indoctrination of our young. People will indebt themselves for tens of thousands of dollars to send their children to schools in which they will be indoctrinated with nonsense. It is a crazy, crazy world. His return is mocked. But Peter comes back and says his return is certain. And that's the second statement we need to hang on to. Understand that it is mocked. It's always been mocked. It'll always be mocked. But Peter responds and he says his return is certain. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, what is the this? The idea of uniformitarianism, that everything is the same. There's no supernatural, nothing changes. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. Peter presents an argument from history. It says it escapes their notice. In other words, they actually intentionally determined to ignore. That's what the Greek uh, communicates to us. They intentionally determined to ignore the reality of history. Both the geological record and the fossil record both point to the same reality, that we live in a moral universe in which sin cannot and will not go unpunished forever. It escapes their notice. They intentionally neglect is the idea. That the earth and the heavens were formed and then destroyed. This takes us back, of course, to the creation account. To the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and to the flood of Genesis 2. If you ever wonder why people um, are so vehemently opposed to the idea of a universal global flood, one might be inclined to think that it is because of its moral implications, not the scientific problems associated with it. The Bible is very, very clear. Wickedness had grown to such a level on this planet that God washed it clean. The account is given to us in Genesis. It is referred to by Christ himself. It is the, the, 
the fixed reality for all generations that there is a consequence for sin, that we do live in a moral universe. And this flood itself prefigures the final judgment, verse 7, but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. How do I know? How do I know that the evil will not prevail? How do I know that the unrighteous will be punished? How do I know that there is pleasure in sin only for a season? But in the end, it is bitter. I know because God has placed a fixed marker, and that fixed marker is the flood. If he wiped the earth clean once, we know that he can and he will do it again. We have the rainbow. We have the promise that it will never again be by water, right? Every time you see a rainbow, you can thank God for the promise that he will not wipe the earth clean again by flood, but remember at the same time when you look at that rainbow that there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. (coughs) (coughs) Having given them an argument from history, Peter then gives them an argument from Scripture in verses 8 through 10 for the certainty of the return of Christ. And he begins by talking about the relativity of time. The mockers have said, where is your Jesus? Where is he? How come he hasn't come? One generation has gone after another. Nothing has changed. He's never come. And Peter says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that what the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. In other words, God doesn't measure time like you and I. He doesn't measure time like you and I. Time is only long for you and I because we are finite in nature. The older I get, the more I become aware of the fact that the days are long and the years are fast. But for God, neither day nor year matter. God lives in an eternal present. And so when Peter says here that a day for the Lord, a day is with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day, he's using an analogy. He's actually giving a a free rendering of Psalm 90 in verse 4. And what he's basically saying here is that God is not bound by human conventions of time. We cannot use this verse to try to figure out how how much time we've got left. Okay? Meaning some would try to add up and say that If a day equals a thousand years and a perfect week is seven days, that would be 7,000 years. Stop it. Okay, waste of time. 
<coughs> one writer commenting on this analogy that Peter uses. He says, God's use of time is extensive so that he may use a thousand years to do what we feel should be done in a day, as well as intensive, doing in a day what we feel could only be done in a thousand years. And I think that's a good way to put it. God doesn't measure time like you and I. He doesn't accomplish things in the orders in which you and I would like. But he is never late, and he is never early. He is always on time. So, there is the relativity of time, and there is beyond that the character of God. In verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness. The idea here is loitering. God does not loiter with his promises. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Why has Jesus not returned yet? Why has Jesus not returned yet? To establish his kingdom? To crush the rebellion? To reward his children? Why? Peter tells us here it is because God is merciful and forbearing and patient. And so he is giving additional time for sinners to come to repentance and faith. This is the mercy of God, and yet notice how in the hands of the scoffer it becomes a point of mocking. Paul says over in Romans chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5 that as God delays, he does so in his mercy and patience that you might come to faith. And yet, as you refuse to come to faith, you store up wrath for yourself. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, he says. God is patient. He is patient with you this morning. If you do not know Christ, it is his mercy and grace that Christ has not come and you have not been swept up in judgment. He will come like a thief, it says. In other words, when Christ does return, it will be sudden. It will be unexpected. And it will be as devastating as a home invasion. It will be like being startled awake in the middle of the night with a stranger standing in your bedroom doorway. What will you do? Will you be ready? God is patient towards you. He does not wish for you to perish this morning. 
There are some of you out here, no doubt, that know about Christ, but you do not know Christ. You have yet to surrender your life to him. You have yet to call upon him to save your soul. Do not tread upon the mercy of God. Do not sit in the seat of the scoffer. Do not mock the patience of God. Do not assume because 2017 has come and gone without the return of Christ that he will never come. For when he comes, it will be devastating. It will be unexpected. And you will be unprepared. Please. God is calling to you even now. You have, you have been given time. What will you do with it? For when he comes, verse 10, the heavens will pass away, it says, with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat in the earth and its works will be burned up. In other words, there will be a cataclysmic judgment. This creation as we know it will be unglued. There are differences of opinion as exactly what Peter is communicating here, whether it's the actual severing of the atomic bonds or whether it's the scouring of the universe through intense heat. I don't know that we can be sure. But one thing we can know is that when it comes, it will be horrible and none will stand. They have mocked the return of Christ from the beginning. He is mocked today. But his return is certain. And third, for us this morning, his return is purifying. His return is purifying. If we take these truths seriously, it changes us. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One writer said a man's character is the only thing he can take out of this life with him. A man's character is the only thing he can take out of this life with him. In light of the return of Christ, what will be our character? What should be our character? How are we to live? I think Peter would indicate to us here that there needs to be a holiness to our character. In other words, we need to have a life that is different from those around us, those whose lives are a mockery of Christ. Ours cannot be that way. 
regardless of the temptation, regardless of how everybody seems to be getting ahead by cutting corners. We're called to a life of holiness. We're called to a life of integrity. We're called to emulate Christ. And so this we must do. Beyond that, we're called to a life of worship. We're called to a life of worship. We need to be renewed in our hearts and minds with these important truths week after week, month after month, year after year. This is one of the reasons why we gather together here is so that we can encourage one another. And as the writer of the Hebrews says, all the more, (coughs) as we see the day drawing near, we need that encouragement. And we need a life of service. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord and the day of God. In what way do we hasten the coming of that day? (coughs) I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. The best I can suppose that is here is that as we are about the business of making disciples we hasten the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus will not come until every last child has been brought into his family when that will be and who that last one is we can never know but as we get about the business sharing the gospel and making disciples. We're involved in the hastening of the day of Christ. What are we looking for, beloved? We're looking for that new heavens and new earth. A Paul door that John talks about in Revelation 20. 1 and 22, that coming time in which the tears are wiped away, in which evil no longer prevails, in which we have no longer a veiled vision of Christ, but that God lives among us and we among him. Beginning in the 15th century, it became customary in Judaism in the celebration of the Passover Seder. That is, they ended the ceremony, and it carries on into Judaism of this day, to end their celebration of the Passover with the words, next year in Jerusalem. And the idea was, is, is that there was that hope, that longing that they would be regathered to their ancient, their ancient uh, capital city, and there they would celebrate their Passover with their Messiah next year in Jerusalem. Well, we don't say next year in Jerusalem, but we have been given something to say as well that expresses our hope. And John closes out Revelation with these words in Revelation 22 and verse 20. 
where he says, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And as we close out 2017, we stand on the brink of 2018. May we say, come, Lord Jesus, and may things right. Let's pray. Our Father, may you ground our hearts and our hope in the return of Christ. May that truth be etched deeply in our hearts and minds. May it be the anchor as we go into the new year. Whatever will befall us, whatever will befall our nation and our world. Let us know for sure that Jesus is coming back, that he has not abandoned his church, and that when he comes, wickedness will be destroyed and righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let us be about the task of living for Christ, speaking for Christ, working for Christ, that we might hasten his return. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.